This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of drug use, domestic abuse, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On the morning of February 15th, 1961, R&B star Jackie Wilson stepped into his apartment with his girlfriend, Harlene Harris, to find another of his girlfriends, Juanita Jones, waiting for him with a loaded revolver. She lifted the muzzle toward his chest. Jackie wasn't sure why Juanita was so violently cold to him. He could only imagine that she was jealous. After all, he was married to another woman and had three live-in girlfriends and numerous casual dalliances. Jackie tried to explain himself, but Juanita cut him off. Her finger tightened on the trigger. The sound of the shot echoed in his ears as red-hot pain blossomed in his torso. Jackie pressed his hands to his gut, feeling the blood pour out. He stumbled backward, thinking of his family who relied on him, and his fans eager for his next hit. He wondered if this was how he would die. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind the cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our second episode exploring the dark side of the music industry. The business has, especially in the last century, been synonymous with some of the most sordid aspects of our society. From rampant drug use, to the exploitative creation of pop stars, to brutal violence and murder, The industry can be a volatile and dangerous environment. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, 
Tap Browse and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. This week, we're telling the story of Jackie Wilson, one of the first crossover rock stars to appeal to both black and white audiences. His talent and ability to rouse a crowd shielded Jackie from the negative consequences of his womanizing, anger management problems, and experiments with dangerous and illegal drugs. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Jackie Wilson was born on June 9, 1934, in Detroit, Michigan. He was his parents' third child, but both his older siblings passed away before he was born. From a young age, Jackie felt stifled by the life his parents built for him. His alcoholic father couldn't hold down a job and was frequently unemployed, meaning that even as a child, Jackie was responsible for helping to support the family. And he chafed against the responsibility. His mother, Eliza May, tried to give him what structure and stability she could, encouraging him to sing in the local church. Instead, Jackie saw music as an escape from the real world. He made pocket change performing on street corners, then skipped school to while away his days drinking wine. Jackie racked up so many truancy charges, he had to make up the class time at Lansing Correctional Institute when he was 12. Ironically, the so-called punishment only amplified Jackie's delinquency. He found the juvenile facility was an escape, not unlike his music. There, he made friends and got to take a break from his chores and other responsibilities. Like many artists, Jackie Wilson had his demons even before he began his career. Every time he acted out, he was rewarded with a loss of unwanted responsibilities. He longed for freedom and found that singing and breaking the rules granted it to him. As he matured, Jackie's misbehavior only worsened. In his teen years, he began to have regular run-ins with the cops. This was okay with Jackie, who still saw his punishments as rewards. Around 1950, when Jackie was about 16, he served a second term at Lansing Correctional Institute. During this second incarceration, he attended a boxing class and fell in love with the sport. Soon, Jackie was a devoted boxer. But Jackie's mother, Eliza May, could only overlook his bruises and black eyes for so long. Soon enough, she confronted Jackie about his hobby and forbade him from ever entering the ring again. Ironically, this time Jackie was obedient, perhaps because boxing couldn't compete with his first love, singing and soon he dropped out of school to focus full-time on music. He booked several gigs at local nightclubs. The teenage Jackie was too young to legally work late nights at a bar, so he provided his managers with a fake ID. This was only the beginning of the laws Jackie would break to launch his career. 
The mob was inextricably linked with the world of music and nightlife, as we discussed in last week's episode. Many Mafia members remembered seeing Jackie Box and were happy to grant favors to the charismatic performer. Jackie may have suspected that eventually he'd have to repay the mob for their support, but that was a problem for another day. As was quickly becoming typical of Jackie, he lived for the thrill of freedom and took to the stage to escape the drudgery of day-to-day life. When he was singing, all of his problems disappeared. His only worry was hitting the high notes, and the skilled tenor always hit the high notes. The bar patrons loved his work, and soon Jackie was performing with numerous nightclub acts and giving gospel performances at local churches. With success came women. Jackie leveraged his natural charisma so that he always had a date, sometimes a different woman every weekend. Like music, Jackie found that sex was another thrill that allowed him to escape. In 1950, one of Jackie's girlfriends, 17-year-old Frida Hood, revealed to him that she was pregnant. Initially, 16-year-old Jackie wanted to do the honorable thing and marry Frida, but his mother was opposed to the union. She thought Jackie was too young to settle down, baby or no baby. But Jackie truly loved Frida and wanted to keep her in his life. Plus, going through with the wedding was easier than facing Frida's ire and that of her parents. Once again, he took the path of least resistance, with little regard for the long-term consequences. In February 1951, an eight-months pregnant Frida greeted her family and a minister at her home for the ceremony. Jackie's father was there, but not his mother. One other important person was missing, Jackie himself. Frida's parents began to drink, certain the teenage groom was showing his true colors. As their frustration turned to panic, an idea occurred to Frida. She convinced her parents to drive her to the Paradise Theater. It was amateur night, and if Frida knew Jackie at all, she knew this was where he would be. Sure enough, 16-year-old Jackie was on stage, so drunk he could barely hit the right notes. Frida marched backstage, and as soon as Jackie's set was finished, he rode back home with her, where the wedding ceremony commenced. Jackie moved in with Frida and her family, and after a month, Frida gave birth to their daughter, Denise. Married life didn't diminish Jackie's appetite for casual sex. Frida first suspected his infidelity two years later, when Jackie came home from a performance with a minor stab wound in his gut. Frida asked him about it and learned that he had some kind of disagreement with a sex worker after the show. Jackie insisted that he was completely innocent and the stabbing was unmotivated. Frida didn't buy the story, in part because Jackie's regular shirking of responsibility meant chaos always followed him. Like when Jackie's mother threatened to repay the sex worker for her son's injury. Jackie begged her not to get involved, but Eliza May seized a kitchen knife and marched out of the house. Eventually, the police interceded, although Jackie and Frida never learned how the law got involved. Eventually, Jackie was arrested and questioned, and in the process, Frida learned of his multiple dalliances. 
But Frida was loyal to her man, even if he wasn't loyal to her. So she learned to make peace with the fact that Jackie would never be hers alone, and he'd only have more opportunity to cheat as his star rose. In 1953, 19-year-old Jackie received an offer to join one of the day's biggest R&B bands, Billy Ward and the Dominoes. As one of five faces, Jackie wasn't supposed to stand out. His job was to harmonize and blend. But Jackie's star power was evident even then. He was too charismatic not to dominate every rehearsal and performance. But the eponymous Billy Ward was strict. He demanded punctuality at every rehearsal and prohibited his singers from drinking to excess. Jackie hated the way Ward's restrictions impinged on his freestyling behavior. As an act of defiance, Jackie slept with Ward's fiancée. When Ward found out, he called off the engagement, but somehow Jackie managed to charm him and avoid any personal consequences. Not only did they maintain their close friendship, but Ward even began to mentor Jackie. Overall, the Dominoes were moderately successful. But at the time, the music industry was highly racially segregated, and as an all-black group, they were severely restricted in where they could perform, where they could stay, and even which genres they could sing. Only certain labels were willing to work with black artists, and those labels had narrow ideas of how to market them. Even a group like Jackie's, which sold millions of records and played to sold-out shows, was virtually unknown to mainstream white audiences. At least Billy Ward and the Dominoes provided Jackie with a steady income. They traveled frequently, giving him a chance to see the country outside of Detroit. And as he traveled, he had more opportunities to cheat on Frida. Being a successful singer only made it easier for Jackie to pursue his vices without consequence. In February 1953, Frida and Jackie welcomed their second daughter into the world, and their first son was born one year later. Thanks to his busy touring schedule, Jackie's children barely knew their frequently absent father. Occasionally, Frida met Jackie on the road, but she was usually busy at home taking care of their growing family. Jackie strove to maintain peace with his wife while his band gained notoriety. Billy Ward and the Dominoes often performed a cover of Elvis Presley's hit, Don't Be Cruel. They never anticipated that one day in 1956, the king himself would attend their show. Presley was so impressed by Jackie's showmanship he bought tickets to see the group the next four nights in a row. Soon, he was a committed Jackie Wilson fan. Jackie wouldn't learn of Elvis's enthusiasm until years later, but he already knew he was outgrowing the rest of the group. He also chafed under their exploitative contract, which limited where the group could perform and awarded Jackie only a small share of the band's earnings. And Billy Ward was an increasingly strict taskmaster. Jackie longed to follow his passions without consequence, and he chafed under Ward's curfews and alcohol restrictions. The only way to get out from under his thumb and achieve real stardom was by going solo. Up next, 
Jackie Wilson learns the cost of fame and fortune. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Frustrated by the sense that he was being held back, Jackie Wilson left Billy Ward in the Dominoes in 1957 when he was 23. His first step to a solo career was finding a good manager. He loved everything about musical creativity, developing new songs, recording, performing at concerts, but he was disinterested in the business side of things. He needed someone trustworthy to manage his affairs. Through his connections at various Detroit nightclubs, Jackie met Al Green, a talent manager, club owner, and mafioso. This wasn't unusual, as the Mafia ran nearly all of the clubs and music labels in the 1950s. Even before he was officially Jackie's manager, Green offered him guidance to improve his shot at becoming a star. Although Jackie was a weak dancer, Green taught him how to physically dominate the stage. Jackie drew on his experiences as a boxer, mimicking punches and dodges in his own dance moves. He developed a highly demanding performance style that would become iconic as he rose to stardom. Through Green, Jackie also met Nat Tarnapol. Tarnapol liked to present himself as Green's partner, but in reality, he was low-level, running errands for Green and his assistants. Tarnapol loved R&B music and wanted to manage artists himself, but didn't yet have the experience or the right connections. He tried to ingratiate himself with Jackie while the singer navigated his business relationship with Green. After a brief period of informal coaching, Green drafted a contract to manage Jackie. Jackie verbally agreed to the arrangement and offered to come to Green's office at 9 a.m. the next morning to sign. But later that night, Jackie received a phone call from Tarnapol. Green had suddenly passed away. The cause of death is unclear, but at the time, it wasn't considered suspicious. When Jackie asked what Green's passing meant for his representation, Tarnapol assured him that he'd take over as his manager. Jackie's friends and associates warned him not to trust Tarnapol. He was too unproven and too quick to pounce on Green's former clients. But Jackie was anxious to enjoy stardom and reluctant to think about complicated business and financial issues. So when Tarnapol offered to handle all of Jackie's finances, including personal money management and filing for taxes, Jackie quickly agreed. He even signed over his power of attorney. In essence, Jackie signed over complete control of his career, his money, and his life. Ironically, he probably thought he was buying his liberty, freeing himself from boring paperwork and complicated decision-making. But instead, he transformed himself into a product, one that Tarnapol didn't hesitate to exploit. That's not to say that Jackie had many better options. 
managers usually held all the power, since they had the connections to radio stations, venues, composers, and the press. It didn't matter how good Jackie was at singing and dancing if the right people never witnessed his talent. The power differential between Jackie and Tarnopol was only amplified by the racist attitudes of the late 1950s. Thanks to segregation and racial inequality, black artists like Jackie struggled for recognition. It was all too easy for white producers to plunder their black artists' talents, only to turn their attention to more mainstream and lucrative white artists once the black client had nothing more to offer. But Jackie was too blinded by the prospect of stardom to see the risk. Under Tarnopol's guidance, Jackie recorded and released his first album, Read Petite. It dropped in September 1957, when Jackie was 23 years old. The record wasn't a runaway hit by any means, but it did well enough to make Jackie Wilson a household name. For two years, Jackie toured to promote the album. He appeared on American Bandstand, a TV show with a large white fan base. In the late 1950s, almost all radio stations limited their playlists solely to music by white artists. So even equality-minded white listeners had little opportunity to discover black artists. Jackie's well-received American Bandstand performance was a major breakthrough for black artists nationwide. In October of 1958, Jackie released his follow-up, Lonely Teardrops. It was a crossover hit, selling well with black as well as white audiences. It climbed to seventh place on the U.S. pop charts and sold over a million copies. While Reed Petit gave Jackie a taste of fame, Lonely Teardrops made him a legend. And it was all thanks to his collaboration with Nat Tarnopol. Jackie distinguished himself from other burgeoning rock stars by choosing music that catered to his own vocal stylings. Because he was able to sing in the high tenor range, he was better able to showcase his skill with flowing, lilting melodies. Jackie drew from the traditions of opera, show tunes, and other genres outside of R&B. Tarnopol encouraged Jackie to explore these genres even as his fellow performers warned that breaking with popular styles would hurt his record sales. Jackie didn't care about those matters. He just wanted to sing. Jackie quickly became known not only for his vocal work, but also for his physically demanding performances. He danced, he gyrated, he closed his concerts by flopping to the ground and allowing his ecstatic fans to climb on top of him. Other times, he dove into the crowd where female fans ripped the clothes off his body. Soul singer Teddy Pendergrass described the sight at one of Jackie's concerts. Quote, And to see the ladies run through the guardrails and just lay on top of him and appear to make mad, passionate love to him in the middle of the floor at whatever time it was that morning. My jaws dropped. I said, my God. Although Jackie's performances seemed risque, he managed to spend most of his career free of censorship or pushback. He may have benefited from his old-fashioned song choices, which gave the entire performance a more wholesome flavor. By the end of the 50s, Jackie seemed like an undisputed success. He had ravenous fans and amazing record sales. 
but behind the scenes, he was struggling financially. In 1959, 25-year-old Jackie took home between two and $3,000 a night, the equivalent of $17,000 to $26,000 today. But his contract with Tarnapol meant that he was responsible for paying his own travel costs and his crew's salary out of pocket. Jackie didn't understand investment, and Tarnapol encouraged him to avoid savings and stocks in favor of spending what he made as he made it. Jackie was only all too happy to take the advice. But his friends feared that Tarnapol was intentionally giving him bad financial advice to keep the musician dependent on him for more bookings. The more self-destructive Jackie was, the more Tarnapol stood to gain. Not only did Tarnapol encourage Jackie's worst tendencies, he also couldn't account for Jackie's earnings. Thanks to minimal regulation, Tarnapol didn't have to share information about record sales or production costs. Instead, Jackie just had to take Tarnapol's word that his paychecks were accurate. And if Jackie distrusted Tarnapol, he had little recourse. Tarnapol's methods were endemic to the industry, and Jackie had no assurance that other producers would treat him any better. The music industry had learned some tricks from its partners in the mafia. Producers watched out for themselves, and if any artist proved to be trouble, they'd soon find their careers dried up. With ample cash flow, record labels could make things happen to secure their own power. Tarnapol also had ties to the actual mob, as well as other predatory record producers like infamous label owner Morris Levy. Although Tarnapol later denied the claims, it's suspected that much of the fortune Jackie earned went into mafia coffers. It's hard to say for sure where the truth lies, as many of the records related to Jackie and Tarnapol's business relationship have been lost. Biographer Tony Douglas alleged that Tarnapol destroyed the paper trail himself to cover up his mismanagement. Several people, including other Tarnapol clients, dispute these claims. Still, Jackie didn't bother to investigate his financial situation. He subsumed himself into the pleasures of sex and alcohol. By 1960, he openly shared a New York apartment with fashion model Harlene Harris, despite still being married to his wife, Frida. He had two other live-in girlfriends in two other cities, an arrangement made possible by an active touring schedule and handlers who were content to stay out of his personal life. Jackie also had a temper which went completely unchecked. So long as he kept selling records, Tarnapol was happy, which meant nobody intervened when Jackie's outbursts began getting him into trouble. In 1960, 26-year-old Jackie punched a police officer at a New Orleans show. He knocked the officer unconscious and was rewarded with a beating so severe he had to flee town early the next morning fearing for his safety. Another time, Jackie flew into a rage when one of his girlfriends, Lynn Ciccone, flirted with another man. Although Jackie frequently slept around, he was violently possessive. And when they got back to his apartment, he beat and choked her. Thanks to a sudden mood swing, Jackie broke off the attack to cry, and Lynn escaped to the relative safety of the bathroom. 
Jackie never faced any serious repercussions for his violent attack. He brought in too much money for his producers to risk upsetting him. And Lynn was too intimidated to stand up for herself. Once again, Jackie skirted consequence. Or at least career consequences. His unconstrained lifestyle finally caught up to him in February 1961, when one of his girlfriends, Juanita Jones, snuck into his Manhattan apartment with a loaded gun. When 26-year-old Jackie and his other girlfriend, Harleen, came back after spending the night out, Juanita was there to confront them. Jackie tried to calm her, but his efforts were for naught. Juanita fired twice. Reports vary as to whether Juanita was aiming for Jackie or for Harleen. Either way, Jackie was struck once in the torso and once on his backside. Injured but still conscious, Jackie grappled with Juanita, wrestling the gun from her hands. Once the weapon was secure, he stumbled down the stairs, leaving Harleen alone with Juanita. Blood poured from his wound and he felt lightheaded, but he couldn't let himself collapse and bleed out. His life depended on getting help and fast. Jackie staggered out on the street. Luckily, a police officer spotted him and within minutes, he was rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. Jackie survived the shooting, but only barely. A bullet ripped through his kidney before lodging itself near his spine. A slight change in trajectory in either direction would have killed or disabled him. Because of the slug's placement, his doctors couldn't safely remove it. Instead, Jackie carried the bullet with him for the rest of his life a stark reminder of the dangers of infidelity. When Jackie's managers learned of the shooting, they debated how to handle the delicate situation. In the early 1960s, pop stars' personal lives were expected to be wholesome and free of scandal. Jackie's proclivity for illicit sex was well-known and generally accepted within the industry, but if his fans learned of his promiscuous ways, it could alienate record buyers. Jackie's label had to walk a fine line. His brand sold well, but his personal vices threatened to become a liability. It would be too difficult to convince Jackie to change, so instead they could only manage his image. While he recovered in the hospital, Jackie's PR team leaked their own story to explain away his injuries. According to this completely fabricated tale, Juanita was a suicidal fan who had broken into Jackie's room to kill herself. Jackie valiantly intervened, trying to grab the gun from her. In the ensuing struggle, the revolver discharged, injuring Jackie. Not only did the story allow Jackie to save face and cover up his infidelities, it also made him out to be a hero. Nobody publicly questioned the label's version of events. Even Juanita corroborated this version of the story, perhaps because it allowed her to escape arrest for her attempted murder. Jackie was far from the first or the last artist to benefit from a music PR machine that covered up his scandals. Jackie would continue his dangerous behavior, and the industry would continue to shield him as long as it advanced their own best interests. While some might expect Jackie's brush with death to dissuade him, he continued to seek out sex wherever he could get it. When Frida came to visit Jackie in the hospital, 
he pressured her to have sex with him in the small bathroom attached to his room, against doctor's orders. During his hospital-bound recovery, Jackie also encouraged Frida to bring him alcohol and cocaine. Until now, Frida had been unaware that Jackie was using cocaine at all. When she refused, he coaxed his band members and mistresses into fetching him the drugs instead. Jackie was discharged in late March with a limp and chronic pain. He dealt with it by self-medicating with cocaine and heavy drinking. But one day, his lifetime of indulgent behavior would finally catch up to him. Up next, Jackie struggles with legal troubles and addiction. Now, back to the story. After he took two gunshots in February 1961, 27-year-old Jackie Wilson recuperated in the hospital for weeks. Soon after he emerged from the hospital, he was hit with another set of problems. He found out he was being audited by the IRS. His manager, Nat Tarnapol, was supposed to be handling his personal finances, but he hadn't actually paid his taxes in years. In mid-1961, the government seized Jackie's house to cover back taxes. Jackie was only able to reacquire his home by buying it back at an auction. Unfortunately, his debts only accumulated as his record sales dropped. After seven years dominating the charts, the audience had grown bored with his old-fashioned R&B stylings. Although Jackie was losing status, he still had the same bad habits and addictions. Those same bandmates who'd enabled his drug use when he was at his peak were disinterested in helping him at his low point. At the end of the day, Jackie was a product. And if he was no longer profitable, he wasn't their problem. One night, 32-year-old Jackie was booked for a performance at Hollywood's Trip Nightclub, but ticket sales were sluggish. Jackie steeled himself to sing to a nearly empty room. He was astonished to step on stage and face a packed house. For two nights in a row, Jackie sang sold-out shows. The second night, he solved the mystery when a stranger tapped on his dressing room door. Ever since he'd seen Jackie perform with Billy Ward and the Dominoes, Elvis Presley had been a Jackie Wilson fanatic. Elvis had bought a ticket to Jackie's Hollywood set, and his entourage, fans, and the press followed suit. Although Elvis had been a fan of Jackie for years, this was the first time they met face-to-face. The pair swapped stories and then saw a movie together that night, kicking off a friendship that lasted over a decade. But Jackie's behavior ruined as many relationships as it earned him. Finally fed up with the years of adultery, Frida filed for divorce in 1965. As was often the case, Jackie ignored the problem. He failed to show up for divorce proceedings and was frequently delinquent on child support payments. He also continued to engage in just as much casual sex as he had before. In March of 1967, he booked a room in a Columbia, South Carolina hotel with his drummer and two white groupies. Minutes after they checked in, police burst into the room. Nothing illicit had happened yet. Jackie was still fully clothed and sitting in a chair, 
but the police still charged him and his drummer for being, as the Detroit Courier described it, quote, nude at a motel with two white women. Although the Supreme Court had overturned the ban on interracial sex a few years earlier, the police still regularly made unauthorized arrests in order to harass black citizens. Jackie's bust made papers nationwide. Perturbed not by the arrest, but by Jackie's apparent sexual impropriety, several radio stations threatened to pull his records from rotation. Ironically, it seemed they were okay with Jackie's sensual dancing, but not with the idea that he actually had sex. Eager to restore Jackie's wholesome public image, Tarnapol pressured him to marry his longtime live-in girlfriend, Harleen. Jackie agreed, but his second marriage did no more to stem his sexual impulses than the first one had. Jackie's love of women was apparent offstage and on. Female fans adored the way he oozed sensuality during his performances. Jackie found that they loved it when he stepped on stage drenched in sweat. So in order to perspire more, he took salt pills. When a person's body is flushed with salt, the kidneys release more water in order to balance the sodium levels. While Jackie enjoyed the pill's sweaty side effects, he didn't realize that his high salt intake was damaging his cardiovascular system. The salt pills were still one of Jackie's milder vices. By 1967, he was caught up in the thrall of cocaine addiction and regularly took amphetamines. The uppers heightened his temper. His friends noticed how a perfectly calm Jackie would fly into a furious rage at the smallest provocation. As he grew dependent on drugs, his mood swings and quick temper grew worse. And no one around Jackie was willing to tell him no. The curse of his notoriety meant that he surrounded himself with people who were willing to appease him. Jackie's emotional problems were passed on to his children. His oldest son, Jackie Jr., shared Jackie's temper. On September 28, 1970, 16-year-old Jackie Jr. picked a fight with a friend and was shot dead. Jackie blamed himself for his son's murder. He felt like Sonny had paid the consequences for his own vices. Consumed by grief, His alcoholism and drug dependency only became worse. Thanks to poor money management and declining record sales, Jackie was also broke. Even after he fired Tarnapol as his personal manager, he still had a contract with the label Tarnapol owned. He performed far less frequently than he once had, which meant his income dried up. Harleen had kicked Jackie out of her apartment shortly after their sudden marriage, and Jackie could no longer afford to pay his own rent. So the 37-year-old moved in with another long-term girlfriend, a nurse named Lynn Crochet. They married in 1971, but it wasn't legally recognized because Jackie was still officially married to Harleen. When Lynn saw firsthand how severe Jackie's addiction was, she encouraged him to get clean. But Jackie relapsed again and again, and Lynn finally threatened to leave him for good. Faced with the ultimatum, 
Jackie sequestered himself for six weeks, after which he stopped using drugs and alcohol altogether. He found himself more energized and finally pulled out of his grief and depression. But Jackie didn't stop his use of salt pills. Perhaps he didn't see them as dangerous since he wasn't using them recreationally, or maybe he was just willing to sacrifice his well-being if it would liven up his flagging career. And he needed all the professional help he could get. By 1975, Jackie hadn't released a hit song in over seven years. The 41-year-old was surprised when he got an offer for a new tour that year, the good old rock and roll review. Television host Dick Clark had recently developed a popular tour format, booking classic rock stars for review shows aimed at aging, nostalgic fans. Jackie Wilson was a perfect fit. That year, Jackie began giving twice-daily concerts in Las Vegas. He proved to be professional, showing up sober and on time. The fans loved him. Soon, the tour went national. On September 29, 1975, Jackie performed at New Jersey's Latin Casino. As he crooned and danced and flopped on stage, his fans roared with delight. The old Jackie Wilson was back. He began to sing his original hit, Lonely Teardrops. Midway through the song, he tried to launch into the chorus, but he stopped almost mid-word. He dropped to his knees, then fell backwards, striking his head against the floor. Dick Clark watched Jackie's performance from the wings. He thought Jackie was playing up the drama of the chorus, fate collapsing for effect. But he didn't get back up. Irritated with the theatrics, Clark shouted at Jackie, urging him to get on with the show. Still, he didn't move. One of the first people to recognize that something was really wrong was performer Cornell Gunter. He ran on stage and saw that Jackie wasn't breathing. He shouted for the crew to call 911 and started performing CPR. Jackie had lapsed into a coma before he arrived at the Cherry Hill Medical Center. Doctors tried to diagnose him, but couldn't come to a consensus. He clearly suffered from some form of brain trauma, but they couldn't agree whether it was a heart attack or stroke. Jackie's use of salt pills suggested a heart attack, and that's the most widely accepted explanation today. The brain damage most likely stemmed from the bump to his head when he fell. In January 1976, about four months after his heart attack, Jackie woke from his coma. But he wasn't the same Jackie his friends and family had once known. He couldn't communicate or move his body. The brain damage had destroyed his once vibrant personality. In May 1977, Jackie was moved to Medford Lee's Retirement Center, where he could receive the continuous care he needed. He was still living at the facility seven years later, when he died of pneumonia at age 49. As Jackie's family and friends tried to finalize his affairs, they found that Jackie had never fully rebounded from Tarnapol's financial mismanagement. He was so deeply in debt, his family couldn't even afford a tombstone. Instead, Jackie was buried in an unmarked 
grave. Jackie Wilson lived his life guided by his passions and impulses, ruled by his temper and his libido. On stage, he embodied sensuality and passion, and his success led his managers to enable his vices. Jackie loved the spotlight. Whether he dreamed of being a professional boxer or gyrating before a crowd of thousands, his performances made him a brilliant star before he burnt out from drug use and financial mismanagement. He had already developed a love of alcohol and sex as a teenager, but his fame allowed him to pursue his worst whims with little to keep him in check. In order to live his unrestrained life, Jackie had to pay a steep price. He surrounded himself with people who wouldn't rein him in until his impulses cost him his family, his lovers, and ultimately, his own life. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll continue our exploration of the dark side of music with Johnny Cash. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>